Good to see everybody. Thank you for singing my favorite hymn, which is a birthday song sung to me. Yeah, I just have an affinity for it. Thank you so much. Would you like to know how old I am? Well, I don't think that's any of your business. I can't believe the intrusion. 72 years old. Still walking, barely. Still sings somewhat. What'd you say? No, it's not today, Juan. It was a couple days ago. You missed it. Today's your birthday? Oh, Marine Corps. <laughs> Marine Corps. What's the difference between the Marine Corps and the Boy Scouts? The Boy Scouts have adult supervision. <laughs> See, there you go. That's my friend Juan. My ex-friend Juan. Yeah. He tried for the Army, but the standards were too high. So he had to settle for the Corps. <laughs> We require reading in the army. So we love each other. We love it. Are there other Marines here? I'm just curious. Who else have I offended? Just one Marine? Oh, you got. Oh, my heaven. God bless. Look, they make sounds and everything. God bless you, brother. Thank you for serving. Everybody. No, we can't forget. Judith has a tie to the Navy. Her son's in the Navy. Who served in the army here? Everybody? There you go. Way to go. Air Force people? We got Air Force? There you go. So my wife was in the Air Force, and I was in the army, so was my son. And we have unbelievably heated discussions. So not long ago, my wife just, she's pretty much usually proper and under control, but she just exploded. And she just said, you people even couldn't, couldn't even get where you need to get without us. And she just went crazy. So she ran out. I'm not kidding you. She, she ran out to Walmart to get an Air Force shirt that she put on to, to just proudly display around the, around the house because we give her a hard time. Thank you for letting me share that. It's cheaper than the cost of marital therapy. Very expensive. So anyway, God, God bless you all. Good to, good to see you. So, very interesting. Good to see you, John. I was in the Air Force first, uh, unsaved, um, and um, came to know the Lord in the Air Force, and then got out, went to seminary, and went back into the military in the Army. What is wrong with me? <laughs> Just crazy. So I wanted to go to seminary and go back in the military as a chaplain because when I was in the service, we had good chaplains and bad chaplains. That's the way it is. And I thought, man, there's a lot of people in the same situation I was when I was in the service, lost as a goose. And so I wanted, I wanted to be a good chaplain and kind of reach those guys. So that's, that's what we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, there you go. Thanks for... You know, whenever John Wilhoite raises his hand, I start shaking. Because you really never know what's going to come. But that was a very delightful opportunity, which you gave me, Mr. Wilhoite, to share, talk about myself, which I enjoy doing. So... <laughs> so... Praise the Lord is right. 
We, we, in our Bible study class, we, uh, a prayer thing goes around, and so that was on there. And that is a great, great praise for sure. Judy's such a doll, and what a wonderful intervention by a great physician. Great, John. Thank you for sharing that. R- wonderful, wonderful news. Well, um, do you know Debbie Doris? Anybody know Debbie? There she is right there. Deb, do, do something to distinguish yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Debbie's friend. So Debbie's a great, really super lady and quite a student of the Bible. And so she submitted tonight's verse. We're still in this series, Super Duper Bible Verses. So some of you are wondering, when will it end? When we run out of Super Duper Bible Verses. So we have a long way to go. So this was a wonderful a passage that Deb submitted, and she has certain observations uh, about it that I believe are quite accurate. And so she thought it might be, might be helpful for us to slow down and take an extended look at this particular verse of Scripture. It is, uh, you're familiar with it, it's 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. But before we get to that verse, um, we, we, let's back up to verse 1. And that's called examining a verse in its context. Do you mind sharing with the group, anybody, why is that even important? Why can't we just skip to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? Why is it a better idea for us to first look at the first 13 verses? What, what do you think, Bill? Oh, my goodness. Did you hear that? Text without context. Context is pretext. That's exactly. Oh, that was. No, that's not true. That can't be. It's way too profound. No, that I will refuse to accept that. Folks, we get in lots of trouble if we find a verse which appeals to us and we think is saying something we could use when maybe, in fact, that's not what the context is saying at all. In fact, I think we could say all false teachers do this. (laughs) Wrench a passage out of context to make a point. It'd be quite persuasive. And the uninitiated would say, what are you objecting to? He or she, they're sharing the Bible. But you know who else shares scripture? Satan. So, uh, you know, the scripture talks about uh, being a diligent, a careful craftsman, handling scripture. That's not an exhortation just to ministers. It's all of us. Let's show respect to the Bible. God gave us the Bible in chapters and sentences and phrases, and it's organized, and there's syntax. So we'll examine the context. Uh, uh, Benson, did you have? Yeah. Now, Benson makes, that's Benson Pear right there. He's a good guy on certain occasions. So what a good point. Uh, uh, You know, the chapter and verse divisions, do you know they were added to the Bible late? uh, I don't know, 1500s or something like that? What a help, is it not? Uh, that uh, someone took it upon themselves to do this so that I could say, folks, let's look at uh, 2 Chronicles 
chapter 7, verse 14, we could all get there in a matter of minutes. What if we couldn't? So in the old days, Benson is correct, we didn't have chapter and verse divisions as we do today. So you had to say stuff like, turn to the page with the mustard stain in the bottom right-hand corner, or something like So So they didn't have it. Of course, that obligated them to really study Scripture and to memorize it. It's kind of a lost art and skilled today. But you're right, Benson, that was the case. So um, we're going to look at this in context. So let's begin in chapter 7, verse 1. Look, now when Solomon uh, had finished praying, there, there's a specific um, a series of prayers Solomon uttered at, on this occasion. When he had finished praying, Fire came down from heaven. Here's what it did. It consumed the burnt offering, not just that, and the sacrifices. Sacrifices offered to provide for the remission of sin. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. What house? Do you know? The temple. That's exactly right. So the temple was built. This is part of the dedication ceremony that we're going to read about of the temple. So when Solomon finished at the temple, when he finished praying, look what God did. Sent a fire. We know it's from God because it came down from heaven. It didn't destroy people or things arbitrarily. It specifically consumed, the text says, the burnt offering and the sacrifices. It's hard for us to relate to what that would have meant to the people in that day. They would have rejoiced and been entirely relieved because if God chose not to accept their sacrifices for sin, they're in their sin and it's unatoned for. In fact, they had to personalize it. They would bring an unblemished animal to the temple precincts. They'd be instructed by a series of priests to actually lay their hands on the animal. They would utter a prayer which in essence said, Oh God, please accept the sacrifice of this innocent living thing in my place. If God didn't show his acceptance of that offering this way, if he withheld the fire, which took up, which accepted, which consumed the offerings for sin, then people would be without hope and their efforts would be in vain. So this was a marvelous thing. So marvelous is it, in fact, that I want to elaborate on the point. So, uh, Deb, before we get to the verse, I'm going to kind of deviate just uh, a little bit, but we'll we'll get there um, unless the rapture comes. Do you believe in you're 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 going? Okay, because at the rapture, then um, Brother Chuck will explain the rest. Text. <laughs> we all have our place, and so so I want I want to show you something. Many religions and faith groups offer to God or the gods something to appease that God's wrath. Many, many do. So for instance, the ancient Aztecs, this is a little um, graphic, but it's an adult Bible study and you already ate, didn't you, Pam? Okay, so this will be fine. This is actually real. I, I tried to take a drawing rather than actual pictures. So 
um, the one to be offered so as to appease the gods would have his or her heart removed. The priests would hold it while it still was pulsating. They would do this in the hope that God would see the serious intent that they had to appease him and accept the sacrifice of this one. That's what the ancient Aztecs did. But it's not just the Aztecs. Some of you have seen this. It's in Israel. It's a circular arrangement of stones. It was a Canaanite altar. It's in a place called Megiddo. You've heard of Armageddon, which is two Hebrew words, Har-Megiddo. You run it together, you get Armageddon. It means the mount or hill of Megiddo. It's right alongside the Jezreel Valley, which will be the staging area of the great worldwide cataclysm. Uh, armies will gather in the Jezreel Valley, the intent being to go south to take Jerusalem. That's a story for another occasion. But this was found there. Solomon established Megiddo as one of his fortress and chariot cities. Uh, on this altar, the Canaanites offered human sacrifice to uh, one of their gods, Molech, in particular. They sacrificed infants and children on this altar so as to appease Molech. The Greeks, what a marvelous civilization. My goodness, what was produced by ancient Greece, and yet um, still there were issues. The Greeks also engaged in human sacrifice, as you can see depicted here on an ancient piece of Greek Pottery. Again, all these are attempts to appease the wrath of the gods. And there are less extreme attempts to do so, to satisfy the demands of God. And so here, for instance, is a, a depiction of uh, the sacrifice of a goat in Bali. See, the people are throwing this goat off of this cliff, offering it to to the gods. And here is, here is a pigeon sacrifice in West Africa. The pigeon is being sacrificed. Another attempt to appease the gods. And there is a practice engaged in by uh, some Orthodox Jews. This man is an Orthodox Jewish man. It's called Kaparot, where uh, during the Jewish high Holy days, which we've discussed in prior weeks, you would grab this unsuspecting piece of poultry by the legs and swing it around your head three times. Somehow it is thought that your sins would be trans transferred onto it and God would accept it. So no more chicken for me. <laughs> then in places it, it, around the world, a lot of people engage in deliberate self-deprivation so as to persuade the gods to back off. And so here's a man in India, sincere as could be, very authentically denying himself the bare necessities of life. He's being deprived of food and of clothing and shelter. He's engaging voluntarily in extreme 
self-deprivation so as to persuade the gods to leave him alone. And then some people, if you ask them who would say, I am a Christian, nonetheless believe apparently that the excruciating sacrifice of Jesus wasn't enough, and therefore they feel compelled to add to it. So this is a procedure, a ritual in the Philippines where one man after the other would use instruments to whip the person in front and thus impose bruises and draw blood so as to make sure, oh, Jesus, what you did is great, but just in case it falls short, we'll add to it this way. So they're doing this as an act of penance, each whipping the one in front of him. Now, what do all of these very diverse religious practices have in common? Well, as I mentioned, they're all meant to appease God. Folks, all of these attempts are authentic, sincere attempts to appease God. And they all are done in recognition of the fact that we owe him something. That's good. These offerings are all being presented by debtors, people who believe they owe God a debt. They have fallen short in some way and are accountable to him. That's all very, very commendable. But for this, which they also have in common, they're all based on human effort. Where's the grace of God? Where's the appeal to his mercy? No, no. This is all, oh God, this is what I'm going to give you. <laughs> it's not what you, I need to receive from you. This is what I'm going to give you. It's human pride, isn't it? Do you know this song? What can wash away my sin? How does it go? <laughs> no, if I was on top of things, we could have done that. Next week? You, do you know it? You got like a whole week to learn it. <laughs> what can wash away my sin? Such a beautiful thing of the word. Nothing. Oh, I wish all of these people we just saw, not to make fun at all, but I hope we're saddened. I wish they knew, no, 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 nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because then that removes boasting, does it not? Who would dare boast of his or her salvation? Who? We, 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 we're recipients of it as an inexpressible gift. We boast in the cross, for sure, but, but we didn't procure our salvation in any way. So then this statement in verse 1 of the text, let's get back to it now, uh, uh, it is saying that fire came down uh, from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. It's quite profound. When sacrifices for sin were offered at this newly constructed temple, God accepted them. And we'll skip to verse 3 now, which says, uh, all of the sons of Israel seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, the house as you correctly identified, the temple, here's what they did. They bowed down on the pavement. That was their physical posture at this time. By the way, there is no standard biblical posture in worship. <laughs> there is none. Here they're bowing down. In some cases, people raise their hands. In other cases, they bow their, their heads. You know, you, you, you just respond as God leads you to respond. In this case, they were so overtaken 
by Almighty God accepting their sacrifice that they fell to the ground. They bowed down on the pavement, faces to the ground, and they worshiped. What God did led them to worship. And they gave praise to the Lord. Here's what they said. Truly, he's good. And his loving kindness is everlasting. Isn't this interesting? They were moved to worship, to attribute worth. That's what worship is. To attribute worth to God because look, in fact, what he had done, he accepted this sacrifice as a means of the atonement of their sin. And they declare two things about God. They declare that he is, look what it says, good and his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, you might have wondered why these two attributes. Uh, maybe it would make more sense to have, uh, for them to have fallen down and praised God for his power. Folks, fire is coming down from heaven. It is surgically consuming some things and not everybody. Wouldn't you be overwhelmed by the enormity of the power of Almighty God? But it is not that attribute they specifically worship him for. It's these two. He's good, and his loving kindness is everlasting. And what evoked that response? The sinner who owes a debt he or she could not pay is said to be able to go debt-free. You just say, oh, God, the only explanation is your goodness and your loving kindness. That's what you do. That's what, anyway, that's what they did. So now in verse 4 on, I'm just going to go through it quickly. The king, Solomon, all the people offered sacrifice on this day. Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000, if you can imagine it, oxen and 120,000 sheep. Can you imagine the sights, the sounds, the smells? <laughs> Why? Atoning for sin is a messy, costly, unattractive business. When Jesus took to the cross, there was nothing neat and pretty, cosmetic about it. It was horrific. In this case, there was such a volume of blood, it is said by Josephus and others, the blood poured out from the temple down into the Kidron Valley, and there was a flowing stream of blood. It cost to atone for sin. And it says, thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Please keep in mind the context here, right? It's the dedication of the temple. So the priests stood at their post and the Levites also with instruments of music. In case you ever wonder, why do we put so much emphasis on uh, music in a worship service? Well, it's quite biblical. They had their vocalists and musicians quite well organized in that day as well. The Levites took up their instruments and where'd they get them? They're ones that King David made for giving praise to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Uh, David... Um, wanted to build this temple. God said, no, but your son will, Solomon. But David fashioned these instruments which are now being used at the dedication of the temple. Uh, the phrase says, for his, his loving kindness is everlasting. So there you see it repeated as it was in the prior verse. 
And verse 7, then Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord because there he offered the burnt offerings and the fat and the peace offerings because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to contain the burnt offering, grain offering, and the fat. And so the temple precincts couldn't accommodate the volume of the number of sacrifices which were being offered. And because of the huge number of sacrifices, Solomon had to quickly set aside another part of the courtyard in order to offer these sacrifices. Verse 8 says, Solomon observed the feast at that time seven days. It was seven days of celebration. So the next time you think our service goes too long here on Sunday, yeah, seven days. All Israel with him. A very great assembly who came from the, look what it says, from the entrance of Hamath, that's the, uh, in the northernmost extent of Israel in this day, it's actually almost near the Euphrates River, to the brook of Egypt, that was a southern extremity of the land in that day. So everyone was involved from north to south for seven days in dedication, dedicating the temple. They came from all over the place. In verse 9, on the eighth day, they had a solemn assembly, kind of a special day, for the dedication of the altar. In verse 10, and on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he, Solomon, sent the people home to their tents. Tents? Yeah, they were nomadic. How'd they go? Well, they went rejoicing, happy of heart. Why? Here we go again, because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people, Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the, and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. And now we get to verse 13. God speaks, if I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain. Why would God do that? If the people sin, God would do this. Hmm. So if I do this, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, you know what these are? Agricultural catastrophes. If you sin and do not repent of it, and if I send circumstances and conditions which keep the land from producing Food by which you are sustained. Or if I even send pestilence among the people. If I do this, now we get to Debbie's verse, finally. If I do this, and does it look to you like verse 13 is part A of verse 14? Isn't that interesting? Can I tell you something? Verse 14 is oftentimes quoted as a standalone verse, but really it's only half of a thought. Talk about wrenching things out of context. You, you, can't, you can't apply verse 14 <laughs> apart from verse 13 because they're one sentence. The next time on a patriotic day, national day of prayer, you hear someone share 2 Chronicles 7.14. They're just quoting part B. You can't do that. Now, here's the verse. And my, if, all the, if these things happen, if you, Israel, sin, you haven't repented of it, and I send this stuff, these conditions on the land, literal, it's not metaphorical. If I send these conditions on the land so that its agricultural situation is jeopardized, if I do this, but if my people who are called by my name, if they, if they do a few th things, one, if they humble themselves, Two, if they pray. Three, if they seek my face. Four, 
if they turn from their wicked ways, if they do those things, I'm going to hear from heaven. I'm going to forgive their sin. I'm going to heal their land. Okay. Remember the context. Dedication of the temple. Solomon prays. God says, make this the base of operations. I'll establish my presence here. Things are going wrong. Come pray to me here. Even when you go bad, I'll remind you you've gone bad by sending some bad stuff. When you read the signals, you see the bad stuff upon your land and confess the bad you've done, the sin you've done. When you humble yourself, when you seek my face, when you pray, when you turn from your wicked ways, when you express all that at this temple, I'm going to hear from heaven and I'm going to heal your land. So that promise, folks, is written to ancient Israel upon the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. Do you agree? Yeah, but maybe you won't in just a minute or two. Because we hear this verse frequently invoked around events like the National Day of Prayer. And at other times when people, uh, Christians in particular, are being encouraged to pray for our nation. So it's very common for people to take this particular verse to mean that God has promised a kind of spiritual revival in the United States of America if we Christians here will humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways. That sounds good, but is it accurate? Not even close. This promise you just told me earlier doesn't pertain to America at all. It pertains to ancient Israel. In fact, to apply this verse to any nation on earth other than Israel is to take it out of its context. Now, I know that freaks out people, but um, if you can prove me wrong from Scripture, I'll issue a public retraction. If it's just that you got your feelings hurt, that doesn't do it. I mean, I get my feelings hurt all the time. Too bad. This does not apply to the United States. The verse is not saying if we believers here in the U.S. repent of our sin, that God will heal our land, America. This does not say that. Though it is certainly a good and admirable thing for us to repent of any sin we're aware of, sure. God has not anywhere in the Bible guaranteed that if we do that, he will heal our land. He may, but there's no such promise anywhere in Old or New Testament. Furthermore, when ancient Israel repented and sought the Lord, they were doing so as an entire nation, the nation as a whole repented. If my people who are called by my name, it's not talking about a righteous remnant, believers, it's talking about national repentance. Though there were individual exceptions, the national character of the land in order to see the fulfillment of this process was that the nation repents. So can you see how 2 Chronicles 7.14 doesn't apply to the minority of Christians in the U.S.? If we get our act together, it'll influence mainstream of society. They'll all repent. No, that's not... If anything, this is calling for national repentance, not for church repentance. Doesn't apply at all. In fact, folks, 
God never promised that if a righteous remnant of people repents and prays for the nation, that nation will be saved. There's no such promise. I, I challenge you, find me one. Now look, don't get me wrong. It is our duty as believers to live holy lives and to seek God and to pray and to repent of sin and to share the gospel for sure, knowing that all who believe will be saved. But the Bible nowhere guarantees the political, cultural, or economic salvation of our nation. Now, I think a lot of pastors don't get this. So, for instance, here's what a pastor recently said. This is a quote from a pastor. I was asked recently, Pastor, do you have an answer to the coronavirus crisis? I thought for just a moment and replied, yes, I do. And what verse do you think he quoted next? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will hear their lamb. That pastor is probably a really good man who is not applying this scripture in context. Way out of context. Second Chronicles 7.14 has nothing to do with what this guy thinks it has to do. It's often quoted as a call to prayer and revival on the part of American Christians, suggesting that if we pray, if we repent, and if we humble ourselves, God will turn America around. He may, but that's not what this is promising us in any way. It has to do with Israel at the time of the dedication of the temple. During a theocracy, not a democracy... There are no such promises in the New Testament. Show me one. Stating that if Christians humble themselves and repent, God will give them a nation and a society that is godly. In fact, I bet you won't like this. We see the exact opposite in the early New Testament church and the church thereafter. The more church people prayed, humbled themselves, spread the gospel and got serious about following Jesus, the more the Roman Empire persecuted them. Not only that, we have no record when this persecution was befalling the first century church that any church leader ever invoked. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Saying, if we Christians just got our act together, this wouldn't be happening to us. In fact, the New Testament says the exact opposite. I bet you don't like this verse, but it's in there. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have profound impact on the surrounding society such that the entire nation, the Democrats, will repent. Uh, you can go to bed hoping that all you want. You can pray it all you want, but don't, don't invoke 2 Chronicles 7, 14. In fact, it says you're more likely to get this than national repentance. In fact, look at verse 13 with me again, if you don't mind. I'll put it back up here uh, for you. Um, it says... Again, if Israel is disobedient and God sends judgment upon the land to get Israel's attention, 
uh, if he sends these conditions, as I mentioned earlier, no rain. I mean, you can't grow stuff without rain, folks. Locusts, you know, they eat your crops. Uh, pestilence, all kinds of diseases and stuff like that. That means you can't grow crops and livestock can't thrive and all the rest. It means you're going to starve. So God will send these conditions on the land if Israel sins and doesn't repent. Folks, uh, then God says, but if you repent, if you do these things, if you seek my face, if you humble yourself, if you pray, if you turn from your wicked ways, I'll, I'll hear and I'll heal your land. You know what God is saying? He literally means he'll heal the land. It's not metaphorical. I'll heal the immorality of the United States. I'll heal the socialists. I'll heal the social justice warriors. I'll get rid of all the CRT. I'll straighten up. If you don't know what that is, good. Be at peace. (laughs) Don't upset yourself. There's no such guarantee. It's a literal promise of healing of the land, the topography, the agriculture, contingent on the nation's Israel. God's covenant people, contingent on Israel's repentance. This is not a promise of the healing of a nation's morality, be it um, the United States or any other nation. Uh, This is not a reference to spiritual revival at all, not at all. And as I mentioned, this is important. Second Chronicles 714 is not even a complete sentence. You know how weird it is if you went around speaking in incomplete sentences, half thoughts, and yet whole sermons are given that way. I mean, you see well-intentioned people all over the place quoting 2 Chronicles 7.14. To me, it shows disrespect to the Word of God. How do you share part B of the sentence and not part A? Come on, man. You want someone taking your words that way? So, um, yeah, that's not right. The first half of verse 14 is verse 13. And verse 13 is not at all talking about spiritual revival of any kind. It's talking about the healing of the land from an agricultural point of view. That's all it's saying. Now, I want us to take a very quick look at the, some verses after this. Again, we stick to the context. Verse 15, my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place, says God, the temple. For now I've chosen and consecrated this house that my name might be there forever. My eyes, my heart will be there perpetually. Verse 17, as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I've commanded you, and will keep all my statutes and ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. Verse 19, but if you turn away, and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I've set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then you get this in verse 20, then I'll uproot you from my land, which I have given you. Why is it that we naive American Christians don't claim that promise? You can't claim Second Chronicles 7.14 because it's palatable to you. And not apply 2 Chronicles 7, verse 20. Why don't Christians in America claim that particular passage for themselves? It's a promise that God, if we don't get our act together, will uproot us and take us to a foreign land. Where? Is he going to send us to Canada? Where are we going? Can you see this? This has nothing to do with America. Nothing. Nothing at all. So by all means, folks, as we 
draw to a close. Humble yourself, for sure. Repent, got it. Petition God to heal our land, absolutely. But do so knowing that God is absolutely under no obligation to heal our nation if we do all those things. None whatsoever. In fact, the Bible, you won't like this, is rather silent about the future of America. Did you know that? There are absolutely no specific passages of Scripture referring um, to the United States in Bible prophecy, except general statements that talk about the nations in general and what their situation will be during the Great Tribulation period, and that includes America. But America's not singled out in any way. So what do we do as Americans? I'll tell you what we do. We should be about the work of sharing the gospel with our fellow Americans. That's what we should do. Because God does promise us that it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Let's go find them. We don't know who's going to accept or reject, do we? Let's, go on. Let's hunt for treasure. It's a treasure hunt. God has already stirred up the hearts of people before we got there. That's why some are so amazingly receptive and others are hardened. We don't know. So we respectfully move past those who are hardened and we stay with those whose hearts are softening to the gospel message. That's one thing we do now. We don't despair. We, we go about sharing the gospel. Secondly, we live a godly life, for sure. I mean, ungodliness invalidates the gospel message. <laughs> so yeah, we got to get our act together. I understand that. And then here's the third thing. Let's look for, as Scripture says, the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How America goes, how other nations go, why don't we leave that up to the sovereign creator of the universe and not come up with some formula for success? Why don't we live a sanctified life, be holy as he is holy, and let it just bleed out onto those around us? Why don't we just do that? Yeah, Lord, that's, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, we're intent on doing that. We're intent on living distinctively Christian lives, no matter what's happening around us. We're intent on seeing the great privilege, which is ours, to be your ambassadors, representatives, and proclaimers of the gospel message. We're intent, oh God, on representing you as best we could. Holy as thou art holy. And oh God, we're intent... Not on thinking the daily news is the reality. Oh, no, Scripture is the reality, the news behind the news, so that whatever is happening that's newsworthy today pales in comparison to the future hope which we have of your blessed and perhaps soon reappearing. This we pray in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.